0: Today is the first day of the most important holiday week in Christianity. First day of what's called Holy Week. Christianity is the largest religion in the world. And if one combines the followers of all the varieties of Islam and Christianity and Judaism, all the so-called religions of the book, the book of that sees ethics unfolding in history, we're looking at the majority of humankind. There are 350,000 religious congregations in the United States. 350,000 different religious gatherings of people and 80% of those are Christian. And Unitarian Universalism is a religious tradition that grew out of Christianity. Both the Unitarian and Universalist traditions defined themselves and took their particular message, their particular emphasis, their their message that continues to shape us, flowing out of an understanding, a particular understanding of the person called Jesus. Therefore, if you were to understand Unitarian Universalism, comprehend the evolution of First Parish in Cambridge, understand the ethical concept of, that we, we proclaim, it would be good, it would be good to understand the particular Unitarian and Universalist understanding of Jesus. That difference in understanding explains a great deal about Unitarian Universalism. You see, the established Christian Church believed that God was on earth in Jesus. God was on earth in Jesus, and it starts the story there. And that story, as we, you probably may have heard from this pulpit at some point, was developed over time. Over centuries, theologians developed ideas that elevated and elevated and elevated Jesus from a teacher, from a prophet, from a religious leader, from a wisdom teacher, to a God. So by the 10th century AD, it was proclaimed that Jesus came to die for our sins, came from heaven to die for our sins, and the events in Jerusalem, in what is called Holy Week, were foreordained. Being crucified was what Jesus was born to do. But Unitarian Universals began with, to develop a completely different understanding, and in a sense they would claim and I would agree with them that it was truer to the actual material in the New Testament. So what the the Unitarian Universalist understanding is based on what is called the historical Jesus, an understanding of the human being that is revealed in the New Testament, yes, but based on the light of historical research, based on the context on the contemporary usage of words, on how ideas were used at that time. It's not original intent. It's not the same. It's it's context. That Jesus led a nonviolent movement creating a radically different way of being of doing justice, being justice, doing peace, being peace, is almost all agreed now by scholars. Scholars who try to understand the early Jesus movement can reconstruct, reconstruct from his teachings, from the many sayings attributed to him, then reconstruct his character from the many narratives told about him. And from these narratives, we could be quite certain that he was born poor. He was born in a corner of the Roman Empire that was way out from a metropolis. He did not attend a fancy rabbinical school. He lived in an impoverished village just south of the Lake of Galilee, where there was a large Roman fort, no more than 40 miles away. And from the center, he was far from the center of Jewish life in Jerusalem. From some of the we, detect, we see he has an accent that says he's a person from the country. It's five days walk from Nazareth to Jerusalem. days You could get to San Francisco now on a plane in hours, right? Five days walking to get to Jerusalem. From all accounts, we can assume his mother was pregnant before she was married and that Joseph, a good, work, good woodworking peasant, and is a peasant like, very much like my grandfather who had a farm but would go off in the winter to do some construction work, stepped up and assumed the role of father. Rumors about Jesus being born out of wedlock, however, persisted his whole life, and one sees that two different followers of Jesus, Luke and Matthew, spend a lot of time trying to explain this in the narratives. And they do it with two completely different stories. Two completely different stories. So it must have been a problem that they had to talk about, about a scandal. So in Luke we got shepherds, in Matthew we get wise men, taxation and born in a stable for Luke, born in a house and fleeing to Egypt for Matthew. And somehow wonderfully we weave them together on December 24th and you wouldn't even know they're two different stories. (laughs) It's pretty clear that Luke and Matthew didn't coordinate. Right, they're never two different stories. They write contradictory accounts. And for historians, contradiction is evidence. Evidence of multiple oral traditions you got two different oral traditions feeding two different authors. That means something. It means that there is something going on there. So in his teenage years and young adulthood are obscure. But there's good evidence that he was a disciple of John the Baptist. Which would explain his no- knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. Because John the Baptist would have created a kind of rabbinical school on the run. <laughs> kind of a liberation <laughs> theological school. His belief that God was on the side of the poor and working on the, to create a new humanity are very much like what John was talking about. John the Baptizer taught that the religious establishment was corrupt. And that if one followed the rules of the temple priests, one could really never be a righteous Jew. So if one followed the establishment, what it was like, you wouldn't be, that's not what being a righteous Jew is all about. John was basically saying the temple priests are basically exploiters and collaborators and need to be overthrown. According to the religious establishment, the Jewish religion is about being pure about purity. Purity means not being contaminated by what was defined as uncleanliness. And uncleanliness is, 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 is in the book. It's in Leviticus, there's all sorts of things that are uncleanliness. Therefore, to be pure is to be holy, and to be unclean is to be uh, not holy. Not, you're, not, you're not there. Touching dead things is not, is not clean. Touching lepers, not clean. Women during menstruation, not clean. Men avoided all contact with women at this time. The dietary law is all about being clean. Food, clean food. And certain foods are described to be clean and unclean foods are described. And so if you, See somebody that's really, really telling you that he believes in the Bible and whatever the Bible says in Leviticus about gay people or whatever the Bible says. And then they, they have a suit made up of uh, rayon and cotton. And they go to lobster. <laughs> They're picking and choosing, right? I mean, cause Leviticus is a whole document, and it, lobster's much bigger there. <laughs> Crabs, plants. Now, this is the important thing. Impurity can be removed by ritual baths, which had to be done in living water. Living water is connected to a spring or a river, water that is not sitting. Jerusalem's full of special bathhouses that meet this Jewish law. And in the countryside, the rabbis all have their special bathhouse, all the rich rabbis have their special bathing facilities. To access these facilities, you give money to the people that own the facility. So this meant being a good Jew for the establishment was a matter of forking over money for the origi- religious authorities they had a monopoly on the means of holiness ritual baths so this guy setting up a bathing station in the river jordan is undermining the whole idea come on from, you can get uh, this is living water the water's running so that's what it, why why go into all these obscure practices of because the whole text means something in the context of these obscure rebelling against obscure practices that today doesn't mean much to us at all. It's not simply taking the ethical teachings, but also understanding that all of these things are, in a sense, all these gestures, are all, uh, like getting baptized in the River Jordan, are rebellions against the religious authorities. Overthrowing purity was revolutionary, It kept because purity kept the poor in bondage. Purity meant the poor were unclean. Purity meant women were unclean. Purity was the rationale of hierarchy and patriarchy. John the Baptizer and Jesus who followed him sought to overthrow the monopoly by offering a different way to holiness. John administered these ritual baths in the River Jordan, and we know the practice by the Greek word baptize. Baptize. To be drowned. To be drowned is to wash away the old ways and embrace the new. John went beyond providing ritual baths on the cheap because yes, the river is running water, living water, But he emphasized that people needed to be baptized by something more powerful than water, by the Spirit. To be baptized by the Spirit, to be baptized by a power in one's heart, to be baptized by the Spirit meant to take on a new way of living, living in one's fellow human beings in loving community, living with an eye to nature and God's creation. Living by the Spirit meant to become open to love and spontaneous relationship to the holy. The God concept developed by Jesus is not the same as the God concept being taught by the religious authorities. From the many sayings of Jesus, we have what seems to be a very non-hierarchical God. A God that's very close. A God that's very intimate. A God that's very familiar. Jesus refers throughout his ministry to God as a nurturing parent. Abba. Abba. Not God the Father. Mistranslation, at at least in my understanding of the word Father. But God is the most intimate language for a male caretaker. The male parent. But it could be female as well. Abbas, Abbas is a, it could be used for women. Abba, the Aramaic word that Jesus uses does not mean father, it's more like calling the God of creation, the Lord, the Adane, Baba, Daddy, it's very familiar. It's even more common for Jesus to use the word Rokah, spirit. It's not a word that's commonly used in the rabbinic community. God in this Arabic or, 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 or rabbinic teaching is referred to the Lord Almighty. Spirit or Ra means wind, breath. It's also in a certain sense; it means soft power, soft power. The word is. The wind is grammatically feminine in Hebrew, and I read a lot of biblical scholars saying, eh, it's not important that it's it's grammatically Hebrew. But in Jewish mythology, we also find that the spirit is sometimes called Sophia, wisdom, the wife of God, the co-creator of the universe. So I don't think it's a completely coincidental to use that term. And the wind descended upon the earth, and she blew across the land, and the creation happened. So just there, Jesus begins to depart from the standard run-of-the-mill rabbinic discourse. And referring to God in one breath and wisdom and the gender fluidity that's very unique in the ancient Mediterranean. And he constantly creates situations where standard Jewish practice is upset where he retorts, I'm not overthrowing the law. I'm just fulfilling the law. I'm just fulfilling the spirit of the law, the meaning of the law, the purpose of the law. What are you saying that there's an inner meaning to the law. And then what in a sense is a rebirth the rebirth, or you could say the birth within Jewish thinking of the humanist instinct. We were not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for us. We were not made to obey the law. The law was made to empower us, to give us understanding. We were not made to obey rules. The rules were made to give us guidelines, to enable us in our ethical life. And I would suggest this is very intentional. This Sunday, Palm Sunday, commemorates Jesus and his followers parading into Jerusalem as if he were a Messiah, because it'd been rumored in the countryside, the Messiah is here, a promised liberator. Within Jewish understanding, that's sort of like Che Guevara, a revolutionary militant, a person that's going to come among the people and lead them in an uprising against Roman authority. So what does Jesus do, this Messiah? He rides a donkey. He mocks the expectations of liberation through violence and proclaims the overthrow of hierarchy overthrow of all those of those powerful symbols of—he could have ridden a horse, he could have paraded in armor, I suppose, so unlike him, but he, if he wanted to have the Messiah image as it was created in his time, he would not have come in on a donkey. So, I assert Jesus was a revolutionary, but not a revolutionary. In the power sense, Jesus' movement was radical, grassroots, nonviolent, interpersonal renewal movement. Given all that I have said, it's not going to surprise you that Jesus was completely ups- completely upset and got the, the the establishment really angry at him. All of their, obli- their concepts of obligations and duties and deference to authorities are, were completely being undermined by this movement. It was a message that stood in radical defiance of the rich, the powerful, the religious establishment, and to most patriarchal practices of his time. The last point's quite remarkable. Jesus did not go to uh, a, a feminist analysis school he didn't do that he didn't go through a good anti-oppressive training program and learn about his his, his internalized uh, patriarchy but his positions contradicting prevailing attitudes concerning gender roles over and over again he believed that all Israel could be renewed by the spirit women men children regardless of economic standing. Everyone was welcome, but the poor were especially blessed. And the first would be last, and the last would be first. just creating a statement about a hierarchical relationship. It was harder for a rich man to enter into the household of God than for a camel to go through the pedestrian gate in the Jerusalem wall. The eye of the needle is a proper name for the pedestrian gate in the Jerusalem wall. It's harder to go for a rich man to go into there than to get a camel to go through there. And therefore it's not surprising that his following were mainly poor people and a high percentage uh, Some scholars even argue a majority were women. Now, I want to clear up one of the misconceptions constantly taught by the hierarchical church, the domination church. Jesus had lots of disciples, hundreds of disciples. The word disciple means a listener, a person who follows and listens, people who listen to a teacher, the 12 men named in the New Testament were what we now call advanced men. It's pretty clear from the narrative. They were in charge to go out alone ahead of that group of people following Jesus. They were going to go out before him to villages and preach to those villages and get them ready. Sort of like what, uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton have advanced people that go and build up the crowd and, and organize the, the, uh, the, the, the situation before they get there. It's all ready. Just come in on the plane and speak. So he to build up the crowd. So they're dispatched, and when, he, when they're dispatched, they're given advice on organizing. Be wise as serpents, and innocent as doves, And if they reject your message, move on. Dust off your sandals and get out of the town. Don't stay around. Don't mope. Organizers all should have that on their (laughs) t-shirt. Next. But women had no rights to move alone in society. Women had to move in community. Women were not allowed to go into a village and start speaking to people. Men did not speak to women outside of their family. It was taboo. I don't know if that's what you... Jesus spoke to women all through the, the narratives. And the fact that the narratives have it, and if you look at all the other narratives of a lot of the other religious leaders, all the disciples that they speak to are men, but here he's constantly speaking to women. That itself is a radical departure from practice. And even if he did, the fact that the people who were writing these Gospels wrote it down and said he spoke to women is important, right? They could have just taken and forgot that part. They, They forgot a lot of stuff. And women are welcome traveling with him because it's clear they appear they in different towns with the same name, so that's showing that they're traveling with him. Joining with him and welcoming the household of God, a blatant breaking of the codes, uh, healing of people on the Sabbath. Jesus tells stories, tells stories full of positive images of women, which is amazing given the practice of his time. So yes, I think Jesus was a revolutionary, a radical, a person out completely and totally outside the experience of his time. The Mediterranean world would not allow women to travel alone to villages and then assert themselves to speak before those villages, to public forums, to synagogues. See, they couldn't have done that. So the 12 are commissioned for a very special commission restricted by the patriarchy. Women did play a role in the movement around Jesus, both before and after his death, as the sponsors of house gatherings. The Christians came to call ecclesia churches. And it's important for many scholars, feminist New Testament scholars, to note that the only people who witnessed the resurrection are women. They didn't have to put that in there, either. John Petty points out that Jesus' ministry is mostly to the fishing villages in the Sea of Galilee, especially Capernaum, Bathsheba, Ganeset, Magdala, Massara, Tyre, and Sedan. That's where he goes. And Magdala is the home of the leading woman of the movement. Almost everyone agrees that Mary Magdalene was the most important leader of the early church, in terms of uh, of the movement within Palestine, James, Mary Magdalene. In terms of the pecking order, fishermen were about one notch up from landless artisans, such as woodworking peasants, a half notch lower than a landed peasant. During the Roman occupation, the number of peasants with land was declining rapidly and the result of the Roman tax and commercialization programs was driving more and more and more people into poverty, causing a resistance movement. When people couldn't pay their taxes, whatever property they might have was confiscated and it didn't have any property, they would be taken away into bondage. Their children would be taken and sold into slavery, and that was happening. And the text indicates protests, and methods of protest around that. First-century Palestine was a place of seething ferment. There were insurrections. There were rebellions. There was co- they, the fact that they're occupied by several legion of Roman occupying forces because they were not cooperative in their occupation. And all of these insurrections were brutally put down by Roman soldiers. So the image of Jesus that's put forth by the established church is that he's a spiritual leader rather than a political leader. The Beatitudes, which you heard is the part of the call to worship this morning, are supposed to be for heaven and not for earth. But in the world Jesus lived in, there's no such distinction. Religious, spiritual, politics, it's all the same. Living justice is the central spiritual task. Living peace is the central spiritual task. Jesus talked about the kingdom or the household or the dominion, that word, is funny to translate, of God, the household of God. And to hear him, that meaning in itself is political. Because what it's saying is, The dominion, the kingdom of Rome, is nonsense. Jesus was creating a movement of active, nonviolent resistance to Roman occupation and the elite's complicity in that occupation. And so Unitarian Universalists have come to understand Jesus' death as the execution of someone who took a stand against violence and an oppressive order. They've come to understand his resurrection as a renewal of the movement in the face of defeat. That's how we understood it for long, for generations upon generations of Unitarians. We looked to Jesus who built a nonviolent movement that sought the renewal of both personal and social ethics, whose influence continues on people to this day and who worked to end oppressive systems on the peace on earth. Unitarian universes have continued the prophetic and ethical and oppressive tradition of Jesus. We agree with Mahatma Gandhi, who credited Jesus with articulating the method and way of violent nonviolent resistance. We agree with the Latin American theologians who see Jesus as articulating that God is on the side of the poor, that working for liberation is a calling, We agree with the African-American theologians who see the power of standing for justice in the face of violence. Standing on the side of love has deep, deep roots among Unitarian Universalists, and among those roots, deep, deep understanding of the nature of nonviolent resistance and understanding the revolution in values that Jesus made.